Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. So let's start with uh, with the Liberals being declared to be in contempt of Parliament. What do we What do we start with? Do we start with the the Winnipeg Lab story? Do we start with with the Minister of National Defence? Why don't you choose? <laughs> well, this week showed. Uh, hopefully, Canadians are paying attention that this is probably the most corrupt government, certainly in my lifetime, because they've they've not only been found in contempt, not following through on legal orders of Parliament to just be transparent with documents. The minister himself was censured. He was condemned uh, by Parliament because he's been involved in a three-year cover-up of sexual harassment allegations. And they've filibustered uh, committees, Roy, hundreds of hours of, of wasted time, many days, not a single a single Liberal MP is sitting in the House of Commons. Often it's just one person. Uh, they've, they've shown contempt for our democracy. It's the scandals are aplenty. Canadians deserve so much better. So uh, let's get on to the other uh, one of the other issues that was included in the uh, in the motion against uh, the, uh, the Liberal government of Mr. Trudeau uh, into being as far as being in contempt of Parliament is concerned, and that is the Public Health Agency of Canada President Ian Stewart not answering questions concerning the Winnipeg Biosecurity Lab and the two scientists removed from that lab and fired. Um, Talk to us about that. What, what It's a parliamentary committee that's demanding documentation, and the Liberal government, minority government, is saying, no, we're not giving it to you because it's a national security issue and you're not, you, you can't see it. Do I have that correctly? You, you do, yeah. And Parliament is, is a court. You know, this is actually where that's we write the laws, but you get called to the bar, there's the, the judge is the speaker, and we have debates. And several times now, the Trudeau government has just either ignored or actually refused to to follow the, the, the law of the land, which is an order of Parliament. In this case, just to disclose documents with respect to the fact that two scientists with close ties to the Chinese military were somehow given top-secret access to, to our lab in, in Winnipeg, and in one case sent very dangerous virus samples from our secure facility to the Wuhan lab. They were suddenly fired and, and escorted out, there's no no answers being given. We have said we will ensure that any sensitive information that could jeopardize our intelligence could be handled properly, and this has been done in the past by Parliament. Trudeau just refuses. The, the government feels that they can uh, just continue this culture of cover-up holding on for a potential summer election. They're hoping people aren't paying attention. But I'll tell you, our allies feel that Canada is a risk, particularly uh, when it comes to to China and Huawei and a whole range of things that the Liberal government, Mr. Trudeau, has been offside with most of our top allies on. Well, we're going to be talking in the next hour about another issue in uh, in Beijing. The Canadian Visa Office is actually managed by the Beijing police. Yeah, absolutely incredible to think that we would allow them to to basically have access to sensitive documents, personal information for people. Uh, there has been a closeness between Mr. Trudeau and his, his close advisors and interests of Beijing from the very first days of his time as prime minister. And that's why 
Literally, we are now out of step with all allies in the five eyes when it comes to Huawei. We, as, as a parliament last year, said that Huawei should not participate in our 5G. Mr. Trudeau's ignoring that. The two Michaels have been in prison for you know, 930 or so days now. Um, we, we, are, <laughs> we are really out of step. And this whole Winnipeg lab is really just... The yeah, let me ask you about that. Government. Let me ask you about that uh, a little more. Now, you want the, the documentation that the Liberals say they're not going to give you, or the, the committee wants it, and they're saying no because it's national, nationally sensitive. I don't know why the health minister is making that decision, but anyway, they have their own succession crew, I guess. Um, what can you tell us? What do you know? What do you suspect is in that documentation that we might not be fully aware of? Well, we want to know the extent of any security review of this partnership with the Wuhan lab. Uh, Why are we looking at this? Because right now the Biden administration, Roy, as you probably know, is conducting an overview of the origins of the coronavirus. Yes. And we, we have to see what was the level of collaboration and cooperation. We know that that two very dangerous uh, viruses were sent from the Winnipeg lab. to Ebola being one of them. Ebola and the Hennepa virus being the other one. They're not corona-style viruses, but what were we doing allowing uh, scientists with ties, deep ties to the Chinese military to have access to a very secret laboratory that that handles these sorts of things? And this happened amidst the imprisonment of the two Michaels, the situation of the genocide against the Uyghurs, Hong Kong. It's not like there's been a benevolent China in the last five to ten years. So this is another case where the Trudeau government is actually putting our public safety at risk. If I were, uh, if I wanted to park spies into this country, and and I had a police agency managing the visa center for this country in my capital city, do you think I might put it to use? That's that. That really worries me. The fact that the Beijing police are managing Absolutely. the visa office—that's scary stuff. They were also um, hiring a Chinese state-owned enterprises to provide security screening uh, equipment in embassies and yeah. other things around the world. And yeah. every Chinese state company has a mandate to participate and help the the communist state with their surveillance and foreign policy uh, items, okay. agenda items. They are not regular companies, and, and Mr. Trudeau really needs to get serious here. Mr. O'Toole, what were you people thinking of, all of you in Parliament, when you voted 281 to 2 to support a Bloc Québécois motion to identify Quebec as a nation and support the Legault government, the provincial government's decision to arbitrarily amend the Constitution? To most of us, it just sounded like you all were just pandering to Quebec voters. No, that's not what the motion was. And so what the motion was, it was actually just a declaratory statement, Roy, that each province, Quebec and the others, all have the ability to amend the Constitution in areas that are uniquely for them only, uh, provincial matters of jurisdiction, for example. All provinces have used this power over time. So while people, particularly some commentators, are suggesting it, it uh, was a, a, about the Quebec bill. No, the bill wasn't mentioned at all in what we spoke about. Mr. O'Toole. And right, n- right now we have provinces, especially in Western Canada, that are, are, are being really divided by an ideological Ottawa. So this statement said each province 
is mapped. Yeah, but it was a Bloc Quebecois motion, and you know their only interest is in Quebec. You all know that. You know it was about Quebec being a nation, declared a nation. That's coming next. And that it was about Quebec having the unilateral right to amend the Constitution. It was about Quebec. It wasn't about the rest of the country. And it was about votes in Quebec. This is people, people are not stupid. We understand. And, and we understand that, the, that an election is coming up. But that was, this is a massive vote, 281 to 2. You have to know that the Bloc Québécois, the Parti Québécois, the Legault government, they're smirking. No, well, listen, in 2006, Parliament, led by Conservative Prime Minister, recognized the Québécois as a nation within the United Canada. In fact, if anyone wants to look back at a time, you know, we see people taking down statues, we should have people understand our history better, Roy. I agree. We had two founding nations of this country. Yeah, absolutely. The French and the English. We know the Battle of the Plains of Abraham. From our first discussions to form a country, there was always recognition of provincial rights. At that time, it was language, it was religion, and it was the civil code in Quebec. But that has not changed. And Quite frankly, I'm flabbergasted that people don't understand the history of our country better. And when someone brings a motion before Parliament saying 10 provinces uh, pass laws in their own area of jurisdiction, yes, they can. So if I had voted against that, I would have, I would have had to say okay. I don't understand the country. And I can assure you, Roy, I do. I know you I'm do. I'm going to make sure we unite yeah, but that sounds like that sounds like divided cover, now. That sounds like cover fire for an issue. You know that and I know that. That's what it sounds like. To people, 281 to 2 over this motion of the Bloc Quebecois. Anyway, look, I appreciate you coming on this program because you don't run and hide like others do. Uh, let me ask you one more question. The land border. Sure. The Americans want it open. Why are we not opening the land border when we have 75% of Canadians now having been inoculated once and 20% having the double vax? What's going on? This is another area of complete failure by the Trudeau government. Several months ago, we asked to have a plan for a safe and secure reopening of the country, including the border. The big thing we're missing, Roy, is rapid screening and testing. You know, other countries have had tens of millions of these tests used. You can easily open a border with the combination of vaccines and rapid tests. Uh, other countries, like the UK, were sending them to households so kids could go to school. Mr. Trudeau didn't even prove the rapid tests for six months and hasn't used them at our ports and at our airports. They kind of blame the provinces. No, the federal government runs our border, and we should be deploying rapid tests. And a combination of using rapid tests and vaccinations is how you open. Mr. Trudeau is trying to kind of build a, um, a nanny state where he has almost everyone relying on, on a slow and cumbersome process. We need rapid tests. We need to get the border open in a way that's secure but swift. Yeah. And um, this is something we would do if we were in government. No question that's what we need. And Mr. Trudeau also is responsible for the very slow rollout of vaccines in this country. The Americans and the Brits were so far ahead of us. Lots of talk now about where we are now. But we're only there now because they're pretty much taking care of their people. And the Americans are going to be giving us vaccines or loaning us vaccines or however that's going to work. The Minister of National Defense, Harjit Sajjan, was censured by Parliament this week over his handling of sexual misconduct issues in the Canadian Armed Forces. So a great deal has been said and written and reported on the issue, and it deserves a tremendous amount of attention, but it also deserves a great deal of action. Now, the minister was also censured for how he dealt with the government's court case, or non-case, against Vice Admiral Mark Norman, who's been a guest on this program, on many occasions, and will be back with us. 
and Sajjan's handling of the military mission against ISIS, and more particularly removing the CF-18s from the coalition that was battling ISIS. So we have a lot to talk about with our guest. He's back with us. It's always great to have him with us. Colonel Michel Drapeau, he's retired from the military after more than 30 years, but he's a military matters lawyer in Ottawa and highly respected nationally. And uh, the website is mdlo.ca. We're also going to be speaking with the colonel about a book he co-authored, Canada's Military Justice System is in a Meltdown, Will Government Act? So we want to talk to the colonel about that, but let's begin with the uh, sexual misconduct story. Uh, colonel Drapeau, thank you again for Coming back on the program, we, we have recent reports uh, from the Status of Women Committee most recently this week on sexual misconduct in the Canadian Armed Forces. Um, how, what do we make of these reports? They come out fast and furious. Or do you think they have an impact? Not with the current management, certainly not with the current government and, and current Ministry of National Defence. I mean... The uh, the report by the House of Commons uh, Committee on on uh, on women uh, it's uh, five party in fact and including the Liberals on the committee that have made a, a a number of recommendations. The first of which is to create an office of Inspector General uh, to oversight uh, provide oversight over D and D. It's absolutely excellent. Uh, the uh, the narrative is exceedingly well written. It came out the right time. Um, both the NDP and the Bloc uh, have supported it. They've added their their own commentary and uh, made additional recommendation. But the essence of it, and I, I forget how many witnesses appeared before the committee, many of them military, many of them uh, uh, from civilian life, from academia uh, and the like, men and women. It's a, uh, it's a groundbreaking uh, report as far as I'm concerned. And you don't have to look any further. It incorporates all the recommendations that were made by Madame Deschamps. And in several respects, it, it paralleled and also absorbed the recommendation made by Mr. Justice Fish. So if you want to fix the issue, you don't have to go any further than this. Uh, there's been uh, simply uh, a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of testimony, a lot of attention, a lot of thought going into it. And that's it. I mean... Don't expect a miracle. Don't expect something else. Just take this report and implement it. And if you if you do this, uh, I don't think you can possibly go wrong by improving it, improving the morale, improving the, the conduct, improving the oversight, and uh, regaining the kind of luster and the kind of reputation the armed forces used to have uh, at home and abroad. At the moment, it's no longer the case. You uh, you know women who have been subjected to sexual misconduct. Mm, indeed. In the, the armed forces, and you have clients who have been in that position, do you not? Yes, many of them. Many of them. So how pervasive is the issue of sexual misconduct within the armed forces? And what might a typical hypothetical, I don't know if that even makes sense, how, how would a typical situation develop? Statistic Canada uh, conducted a, a very broad, there was about 40,000 members of the armed forces uh, that, in fact, uh, were surveyed uh, in 2018. And they said at that time, there were 900 assaults that took place uh, between 2018 and 19 after uh, the, uh, uh, the Deschamps report and after the Oponu had been done. Uh, that's eight or 900 a year assault. And they tend to be 
happening where there is a a, a chain of command, a, a power relationship. Uh, so it doesn't have to be only officers and senior officers, but uh, in, in many respects also, there'd be a senior master wine officer or, or a sergeant over a corporal. Most of them would be of a lower rank and in a subordinate position uh, and uh, where their male superiors are able to uh, uh, take advantage of that and eventually, uh, you know, A, arrest them and in some cases go further than that. There's also a several occasions where members of the military in a mixed fashion are also uh, engaged into some social activities at the end of an exercise, for instance, or a border ship where liquor is served and uh, uh, alcohol is uh, is almost, not always, but significantly present. Uh, so uh, a recommendation that has not been made but could be made is we could ban alcohol in in, in unit lines when uh, people are in operations or whatever. It, it happens to be in most other navies and most other armed forces, but Canada, we still have a very, a very open bar type of system and when you mix alcohol and uh, and that type of scenario, then sometimes you could you could you could arrive at the uh, at the type of thing that we're discussing. So it it is a variety. Some of this uh, harassment leads to uh, to assault, and sometimes it is extended over a fairly long period of time. The vast majority of those victims, because of their younger age and because of the of the lower lower rank do not report the crime. If they report the crime, they have to report it to their chain of command. Most often than not, it's individual in the chain of command that are responsible for the harassment of the assault. So it's a catch-22. They can't do it. If they manage to report it to the military police, they don't have a sense of confidence in the military police. So Madame Deschamps said it, and it's it's been proven. Most victims of the armed forces, the vast majority of them, do not report the crime. And, and this is what we're seeing now. Individuals that have been subject to assault 10 years, 20 years, 30 years after, now they see there's an appetite for it. There's a possibility for them. They're coming forward and, and basically are making the allegations. In the meanwhile, their offender has made a full career, has gravitated through the higher ranks and so on and so forth. So it's, it's a royal mess. And until we have an inspector general, until we have an independent police that uh, investigate these, in other words, take the sexual assault, uh, uh, the, the, the crime of sexual assault, totally out of the military, totally out, uh, and uh, make sure, in fact, that any one of those victims can call 911 uh, and uh, receive independent, experienced, qualified police uh, services, and prosecution takes place when, whenever that is required, which is at the moment it's not uh, it's not taking place. And when they go to a to a court martial, often the accused will have a choice to uh, to plead down. He would plead to uh, and discipline the offence, like conduct or prejudice, or good or discipline, and get away with a reprimand or a fine. So the system is totally broken. Uh, there are ways to fix it. It's been recommended. I've recommended in the books that you've alluded to. It's been recommended by. Uh, the committee on the on the on the, on the condition of women's uh, it's been done by Justice Fish and so on and so forth. All we need is a political will to do it. It could be done overnight. Nothing uh, dramatic about it. Nothing uh, special. It could be done overnight. That's stunning. 
Not really stunning. Colonel Drapeau, talking about women who are, who are subjected to um, sexual misconduct, it seems like such a, it's almost a sanitized term. It's a lot worse than that. But, but you wrote in, uh, in, in the foreword of your book, after a decade-long quest for justice, victim of sexual assault and advocate for victims' rights, Stephanie Raymond, learned that her assailant would plead guilty before the Quebec Superior Court of Justice. So she, she lived with the, the pain and the reality of what happened to her. And then the individual who was charged pled guilty. So that was almost a, would that have been almost like an, a non-solution? What, I mean, what was it like for her? Yeah, sort of a way. Uh, but, I mean, she went through a court-martial. I mean, the assault took place back in 2011. The court-martial took place in 2014. And he was represented by military lawyers at public expense through the court-martial. He was found not guilty by the court-martial. It went to the court-martial appeal court. He was found... Uh, the court-martial appeal court decided to have a new trial... Uh, this trial was sent back. Uh, meanwhile, it went to the uh, it went to the Supreme Court for uh, a couple of technical issues and so on. And it's only after the te- the Supreme Court decided, in fact, to yes, he needs to be retried again, that they asked Madame Raymond whether or not at that time whether or not she would elect to have a court martial again or a civilian court, and she elected a civilian court which was the right decision to do. Uh, and uh, and then, um, st- then uh, Gagnon, which is the name of the warrant officer, uh, pled uh, guilty as opposed to going through a new trial. Um, and uh, he will be sentenced uh, on the 13th or 14th of July. So it will be a whole 10 years. And Madame Raymond, in fact, is uh, in many respects a game changer. Uh, she went to court. She she pursued uh, the case, despite the fact that originally she was told there was no case and so on. Uh, she did, and she maintained, and she uh, she decided not to accept the protection of the court by uh, by um, by not um, disclosing her name and so on and so forth. She wanted to testify in open court with uh, you know so that uh, people would know and she'd be able to relate this and so on. So in many respects. If we, ha- if we have the consciousness in the public as we have today and the changes that are about to be, and they're being proposed and so on, in many respects is due to her and her courage to face uh, her assailant and to, and to decide to push it all the way as opposed to just shut it down and, and, and go on with her life. Yeah. But be- having said all of that, she'll have to wait until the 13th of July to know what kind of sentence this individual would have. At the very least, he has pled guilty, but she never had an opportunity to, uh, to, to have her day in court, so to speak. So we've had the same Minister of Defense for six years. For about six Sargent. years, yes. Right, six years. And he was censured in Parliament this past week. And one of the areas, one of the reasons he was censured, there were two others, but this was one, of course, is handling or mishandling of sexual misconduct issues. Now, the prime minister says that uh, the minister is um, is the victim of, I think he said, slander. What is your assessment of the job that Harjit Sajjan has done as minister of defense over the last six years on this issue of sexual misconduct? I've been associated with the military one way, shape, or form for the past 50 years. 
in the past 50 years there's been 32 ministers of defense uh, some of them have stayed there for months others have stayed there for a number of years and if i were to rank them uh, he'd be at the at the body at the bottom uh showing the bottom half and uh he's he's about uh, I mean, I, if I had a choice, I would have changed him two years ago, as simple as that. Um, he had an opportunity five years ago to implement the recommendations made by Madame Deschamps. None of those were implemented. So the program is his. At the moment, he is running the armed forces, which is not the task of a minister. And even if it were, he's not competent to do that. We have no chief of the defense staff. We have no vice chief of defense staff. We just had a new chief of military personnel. It seems to be that uh, he's, uh, he's issuing directions right to the defense center, and many of those generals have been removed without any due process, any procedural fairness whatsoever. He basically, he runs the show, except he runs a bad show. Uh, there is no question about it that the morale at the moment of the armed forces is at, is at the lowest level I've seen uh, since the Somalia inquiry and even okay. before. We, it, it, we, its effectiveness is, uh, I mean, it, we are into a, a very dangerous position when it comes to national security yeah. that we don't have an armed forces with proper leaders and a proper morale and proper discipline ready to do the job. We have about 30 seconds left, and, and let's talk about uh, one of the other issues for which uh, Mr. Sajun was censured, and you talked about leadership. Well, um, Vice Admiral Mark Norman, who was the vice uh, chief of staff in, in the military, was treated very shabbily, and, uh, you know, he was accused crim- of criminal behavior and uh, not treated well by the uh, by the minister, certainly not treated well by the prime minister. What's your sense of what happened to Admiral Norman? Terrible shame, and, and it's the same with uh, Major General Fortin and so on. I don't care whether or not these individuals committed an offense of some sort. Even if they did, they deserve the same protection of the law, the same procedural fairness any one of us, any other Canadian would receive. And they're certainly entitled to have the presumption of innocence until proven guilty. And meanwhile, I think all the respect for what they've done, their service, some of them a 30-year service and so on, yeah. uh, we can, I mean, throw the book at them if they are to be found guilty. But in the process, make sure that they are entitled to due process. Right. And this is not taking place at the moment and is creating fear among a significant number of low-ranking members because they they feel that okay. if anything of the like were to happen to them, they would be treated the same manner. The latest National Advisory Committee on Immunization advice for those with the first jab, a Z vaccine, is that they should get the mRNA vaccine now. So uh, one of the questions we ask is, uh, as far as the vaccines are concerned, What is the impact on the population as numbers of COVID cases decline dramatically? Are we poised for the kind of reopening of society that Americans are experiencing? Are the variants a truly dangerous threat, or are they just what is and was expected? Does increased ease of transmission by COVID variants necessarily mean they are more dangerous to public health? And we want to speak to um, immunity. Uh, We are very fortunate to have with us Dr. Isaac Bogosh, Infectious Diseases Specialist at uh, Toronto General Hospital, Assistant Professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto, and member of the Ontario Vaccination Task Force, and Dr. Jason Kindrachuk, Assistant Professor of Viral Pathogenesis in the Department of Microbiology at the University of Manitoba, 
a Canada Research Chair in Molecular Pathogenesis. That word scares me. It scares me more than the the patho thing. Uh, of emerging and re-emerging viruses. <laughs> Gentlemen, good to have you with us. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Sometimes when I look at four-syllable words before I get there, they get the little panic going in my throat because I, I, I'm never sure if I'm going to make it. What do you? Uh, let me start with you, Dr. Bogosh. What do you? Uh, what do you make of the advice by the National Advisory Committee on Immunization that those with the first jab, AZ or AZ vaccine, should be getting mRNA now? So I think I break it into two components. What is the actual advice? And then how is that advice communicated? The advice is, is, is reasonable, right? If you got a first dose of AZ, get, a, get an mRNA vaccine. That's, it's preferred. Why is it preferred? Well, we know there's a small but not 0% risk of those pretty dangerous blood clotting events with AZ. That risk in a second dose is about 1 in 300,000 to 1 in 600,000. So it's not zero, but it's a tiny risk. But the risk with the mRNA vaccine is negligible. It's like zero. And, and also, we also have a steady supply of the mRNA vaccine. The other reason they wanted to, people to do it is because there's emerging evidence that if you mix and match vaccines, you mount a more robust immune response. So that's why they said it's preferred. How it's communicated is a different story, right? I mean, we've heard a lot of backlash about the mode of communication. People feel shortchanged, they feel hard done by, they feel that they were sold something that wasn't accurate or wasn't true. And I mean, that's unfortunate. For people who got the AstraZeneca vaccine, congrats, you got a good vaccine. There's data from the UK demonstrating the protection, the effectiveness of a single dose of that vaccine against the very transmissible Delta variant at 71% after one dose and keeping you out of hospital, 91% for keeping out of hospital after two doses, that's a good vaccine. So if you got AstraZeneca, congrats, you got a good vaccine. If you haven't got it and you're, you're thinking about what should I get a second dose of an mRNA vaccine, it, 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 it probably is a bit better to, to get the mRNA vaccine if you've got that option still. All right. Dr. Kendrachuk, please feel free to add to what uh, Dr. Bogosh said about NASI, and I'll add to that. We now know that the Delta variant is very much present in this country and is considered to be a, a real threat. Uh, how do you establish the threat level of a new variant? How's that done? Uh, yeah, listen, as an emerging virus person, you know, I, I'm perpetually concerned. So, you know, it's kind of, you know, I go from high risk to higher risk. Um, you know, we, with the variants, the, the way we have to look at this is, you know, what, what, what are we thinking about in, in terms of risk? Are we thinking of just morbidity and mortality? Are we thinking about hospitalizations? Are we thinking about transmissibility? Well, when we look at the Delta variant, we're seeing something that is, you know, upwards of 50%, maybe, you know, 50, you know even higher, uh, more transmissible than the last more transmissible variant, which was the Alpha variant. So even if we take all things being equal, we say, you know what, disease severity looks the exact same as the, the alpha variant, or even if it looks exact same as the, the prior circulating strains. Now, the fact that you have something that's more transmissible and is able to get out in the community much faster and much broader, you know, you're, you're going to be... Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll reconnect with it. And then would you add uh, to that, I want to just piggyback on something you said earlier, Dr. Bogosh, about the mRNA vaccine. Pfizer has become the number one choice, if you will, the, the gold standard, the perceived gold standard for vaccines. Should it be? Yeah, I mean, it, it really shouldn't. I mean, based on what we know now, I, I think it's also fair to timestamp all our conversations because data changes and things True. change. But, but you know, it's pretty clear that when we look at the clinical data and the uh, protective uh, effectiveness of Pfizer, for example, versus Moderna, 
they're nearly identical. You know, when we look at the side effect profile from Pfizer versus Moderna, they're nearly identical. So I would, I, I think they're pretty interchangeable. Like people are a little concerned, what if I got a, I, I don't want to get a Moderna. We've heard of people leaving a Moderna clinic because they weren't giving Pfizer. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. I mean, based on everything we know now, they're, they're basically interchangeable. And I, I think they're, they're both fantastic. And again, I know I sound like a broken record, but for people who got AstraZeneca, you still got a good vaccine. Like that really protects you against COVID-19, including that transmissible Delta variant that Dr. Kinderchuk was talking about just a minute ago. Like the, the data stacks up. So yeah, the mRNA vaccines are, are certainly have the edge, but the but AstraZeneca was still a good a good shot. You know, quite frankly, it's going to be there's only hundreds of millions of people that have received this globally. There's so many people that have got this. It's really going to help transform the global pandemic. Yeah, we're still trying to contact uh, Dr. Kendrachuk, so I'll, I'll continue with you, Dr. Bogosh, and thank you for doing this again. Appreciate it. Uh, I'll, let me ask you the question that I asked Dr. Kendrachuk. How do you establish the threat level of a new variant? Basically, you look at the two things that Dr. Kindertruck was talking about. Is it more transmissible? Is it more deadly? Does it evade vaccination? And does it evade diagnostic tests? Diagnostics, the conventional diagnostics work. They are more transmissible. Yep, the Delta variant certainly is more transmissible. It's unclear if it causes more significant illness, but there is some data pointing in that direction. And it doesn't evade our diagnostic test. We can we can still diagnose it. But those are the four key points we look for. And uh, to date, you know, we, we, we you know, we're learning more about it. But uh, it is certainly just the fact that it's more transmissible stuff because it will find unvaccinated people. It will find under vaccinated communities. You give it time. It will find you like there's enough of this out there. Cases going down. There's enough of it out there that it will eventually find people that are unvaccinated and, and they'll get sick. Are we learning sufficiently more about the COVID virus and uh, its variants that we've experienced so far, sufficiently so that science can perhaps get ahead of likely or possible variants which will or may appear? Yeah, we are. Certainly we are. This is probably the most studied virus in human history, and we've only known about it for just close to not even two years. Uh, It's incredible what you can do when you truly have an infinite amount of resources and funding dedicated to this right like money is no object remember operation warp speed it's basically like guys make a vaccine here's here's the keys to the bank uh so you can do some pretty incredible things when uh with science when when funding is not is not an issue and yeah i think we will stay ahead of this I i really do um you know you can kind of predict what mutations are going to arise you can build better and smarter vaccines, you can build early detection systems, you can have better global coordination and communication efforts. Like, if, if we want to, if you throw enough money at this problem, and you, you spend it wisely, the problem will go away. Just before we go to the calls, we're watching American society and how quickly Americans appear to have returned to a normal or close to pre-pandemic lifestyle thanks to the efficacy of the vaccines. Uh, do you foresee, uh, Dr. Bogosh, you said we should timestamp this. You're right. Is there any projection that you both might have where, which suggests we might be reaching where the Americans are now at what time we might accomplish that? Dr. Kendrachuk, what do you think? Yeah, you know what, I, I, I'm actually really optimistic, and, and I wasn't optimistic at all at the start of 2021. You know, the, the announcement of the CFL season the other day, I, I think, kind of galvanized that for me. I think we're moving in the right direction. Second doses are, are certainly increasing. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're going to get there. And listen, summer is on our side. That certainly is going to help reduce transmission. The Delta variant's thrown a, you know, a bit of a ripple at us. But I think, to be fair, 
Nicholas, have we concentrated yet post doses out to those communities where we haven't had good uptake? I think we're in really good shape. Okay. Let's put Greg on from Lucan in, in Ontario. Very interesting question. Greg, please ask your question of the guests. Yeah, hi, Roy, and uh, hello, doctors. Uh, my question is I have a very rare autoimmune disorder that I actually landed up getting after a major adverse reaction to a medication that was given to me. And I've been researching, I'm trying to find out if it's safe for someone like myself uh, to take this without any consequences because, uh, like, I, I lived through, well, I almost took my life, my, and I, I'm really, really, you know, kind of, you know, a little hesitant to take this because I don't want to have that same experience again because I'm not quite sure if I'd be able to pull through All it. All right, let's find out. Uh, Dr. Bogosh? In general, with things like this, the details matter and the nuance matters, and it's usually a good idea to sit down, not just with your health care provider, but sometimes with an allergy and immunology specialist, just to talk about exactly what your reaction was and if it's a risk with the vaccines. I mean, obviously, speaking at a high level, there's very few people that have allergic reactions to these vaccines. There can, you know, they just very few. It's all publicly available data. They can, you can see exactly what's in these vaccines, um, and and there's very few ingredients that are allergenic. So chat with your healthcare provider. If, if they can't answer the question, get a referral to an allergist and you can sort this out pretty quickly. All right, Greg, I appreciate your call on Dr. Kendrichuk. There's no need for anyone to have a uh, default point of view that this just isn't going to work for me because I have this condition. No, and you know what, and I think that's one of the things that we have to consider is, is with these vaccines, listen, we, we know that, that the tail tape is they came out in, in around 12 months. So, so there have been questions about, well, what is the long-term you know, effectiveness of, of these vaccines? I would hearken to say that, listen, there's been more scrutiny on these vaccines than any other vaccines in history. So the oversight that we're seeing is, is absolutely immaculate. And certainly when we've heard of rare events or, or side effects, those have been reported immediately. So to me, I look back at that and say, listen, we're, we're in, again, we're in very good shape. We don't know necessarily everything. But at the same time, the amount of data that's come in ha- has really given people, I think, a lot of comfortability, and certainly a lot of healthcare professionals, a lot of comfortability with where the vaccines are for, you know, really for, for different age groups and, and all different comorbidities. Okay. Trent is in Calgary. Interesting question. Uh, Trent, thanks for the call. Go ahead with your question, please. Hi, Roy. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Any uh, one of the doctors might have an answer for this. I just have a, a bit of a concern. I have uh, two young boys, an 18-year-old and a 16-year-old. 18-year-old previously had COVID, uh, asymptomatic, continued to find the function just fine, no, no uh, consequences since then. Um, I do have some concerns about vaccinating him, uh, first of all, because he's had COVID and I'm assuming would have a reasonable amount of natural immunity. Uh, and then on the other side of the coin, my son, who's never had COVID before, you know, my concern would be as much as these are, you know, relatively sound vaccines, and I certainly have been vaccinated myself, we don't know what these side effects are in a year or two or three, no matter how much we continue to convince everyone they're safe. We don't know. So what would be their advice on uh, those two, one, one previously infected uh, 18-year-old and one 16-year-old uh, as far as vaccinating? Do- Dr. Kendrachuk, what would you say to that? Yeah, there's a couple things, right? I mean, one of the things that, that we have to go back to is when we've looked at side effects, and certainly with side effects with vaccines, Normally, those have been seen fairly quickly after vaccination. We don't tend to see a lot of, you know, kind of long-term side effects that, that linger or build up with, with vaccines. So to me, that again, that's one of the reasons why I'm a big proponent of, of vaccines for youth. We, we still know that they're certainly a vector for transmission. For, for kids that have been previously infected, 
you know, this is one of the issues we get into where we can't necessarily say everybody has the same immunity post-recovery. But when we get, you know, we look at vaccination, we know that the vast majority of people across age groups have really relatively high amount of immunity and good antibody development and, and good T-cell responses. So that's, uh, it's a little bit more sustained. And I think I look at that and say, listen, if we have people that, that are previously infected, we want to see them get vaccinated because we know that they're going to get a robust immune response to that vaccine. And they're going to get a sustained immune, uh, a sustained level of immune protection that that has been validated based on you know now hundreds of thousands of people in the general public that have been vaccinated. Trent, okay. So, so no, no concerns with regards to some of the things we're hearing with regards to myocarditis and things like that. Yeah. Again, yeah. Considering considering the fact that my son will have immunity, and I realize there's debate about how long immunity lasts, but we've got good data that shows long-term immunity from SARS-CoV-1 and so on. Yeah. So the fact that he's, A, low risk for having any severe outcomes from COVID in the first place, B, he's had an immune response, so he has an immunity now, and C, we don't know quite about the risks of myocarditis. I realize yeah. it's rare. I understand that. It's more, All right. what, what is the upside? What's the benefit for my for All right. Yeah, I add something Trent, here, I appreciate so your call. Go ahead, Dr. Kinderchuk. But I'll let Isaac uh, handle this one. All right. He certainly has yeah, some, so some thoughts. Isaac here. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, listen, we know the risk. Obviously, we don't want anyone to get COVID. But that younger cohort, we know the risk of severe outcomes is way, way lower. And if, so the, the threshold for tolerating adverse events has to be uh, very high. Like, we don't want to tolerate any adverse events. Um, and I, I share that concern about myocarditis with inflammation of the heart. And, I, you know, it's, we don't, I, I, it's fair to say that we don't have all the answers yet. We know it's not that common, and we know that it's, very, it, it, it's, it's predominantly but not exclusively in younger cohorts. It's predominantly but not exclusively in men. It's predominantly but not exclusively after the second dose. Um, I, and, and we are going to learn a lot more about this in a week as there's two big meetings that are discussing all the current data available, mostly from the United States and Israel. Right. That's why, for example, in Ontario, we're not offering second doses yet to that young cohort. That's going to be later on in July after we know more about this. Okay. We might need to delay it or not. So good to know. Very good to know. News is, and it won't be news to most people, that the cost of living in Canada is accelerating. Inflation is up. Interest rates will rise, the United States Fed is predicting by 2023, and an Angus Reid study says Canadian households are struggling with costs. Absolutely, Canadian households are. We're joined by our good friend, and we always appreciate him coming on this program. He's very good to us with his time. Professor Eric Cam, he's a professor of macroeconomics at Ryerson University. How are you, doctor? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. So, uh, no great surprise that uh, the cost of living is accelerating and uh, that Angus Reid found out that Canadian households are struggling with rising costs. What's pushing this? Well, there's a couple things. Uh, most of the listeners know that StatCan has something called the Consumer Price Index, and that measures not one or two goods, but a, a fictional basket of, say, about a thousand goods that are bought on average by most Households, And so what's going on is that the price of that basket is rising and they're calling it base effects, meaning that it is things like gasoline prices and some of the more core things that we have to buy for our homes that are driving up this uh, price level. 
Yeah, the Consumer Price Index, or the CPI, in May, according to the Conference Board of Canada report, was 3.6% higher in May of this year than it was in May of 2020, which breaks the record for the fastest one-year or year-over-year growth in the past 10 years. I don't know if that's a surprise or not, given the fact that we're in a pandemic, but it's it's tough on people, and it's it's a predictor. Is it a predictor for the future? I shouldn't make that statement. I should be asking you. No, it's exactly a predictor for the future. I think there's a two-pronged uh, monster here a little bit. Number one, um, I think that people are ready and willing now to spend a little bit more than they were a year ago. So you have what we call aggregate demand, uh, which has been pent up for a while. People are now coming out of the proverbial spending closet and they want to spend money. Um, number two, you're seeing a lot of the effects of COVID where a lot of the producers were very careful to keep their prices as close to constant as they could. They now feel us coming out of the pandemic. And so they're less afraid to raise the prices of their goods. So you've got prices going up on the supply side. You have uh, demand going up on the consumer side, and it all adds up to the fact that the prices of goods in general, that basket you're talking about, is going up, and it's going to continue to go up. Uh, tough, as uh, Angus Reid Institute points out, it's tough for lower-income households in this country as they look ahead down the next number of months. Right, and it's always hard for low-income households. I always laugh when um, Stats Can or the Bank of Canada come out with these statements that right now it's harder than ever to be low income. Well, guess what? It's always hard to be low income. And one of the problems is that we are seeing the effects of something called stagflation creeping into the economy. So we just talked about CPI going up, prices are going up, and, and it's core CPI, it's gasoline, it, things like that, but it's also non-core CPI, which is just pretty much prices in general, but you have at the exact same time, um, EI benefits are still rising and unemployment is not coming down. And so stagflation, and I know your listeners know about this, is really the worst case scenario for an economy. It's when unemployment and inflation rise. And right now, to your point about what is this foreshadowing with CPI going up, well, it's when you combine it with labor market statistics, we are creeping in to stagflation territory. And, and Canada hasn't seen stagflation in 30 years. So what's the uh, what's at the end of the, uh, of the uh, shaft of light or the darkness, if you will, at the end of the tunnel? instead of the light at the end of the tunnel. What's awaiting us uh, after stag stagflation takes hold? What's awaiting us really is that we're going to have to let the people that we've elected into office and then the people that they've appointed into office in a sense to have to choose. Because as I just said, stagflation really is a trade-off and it is a dilemma because economic theory says you cannot attack both with equal vigor. You can attack the unemployment rate. We know we can bring it down and we know how to do it, but you have to let inflation swell. Or as we've proven over the last 25 years, we can attack the inflation rate, target it, keep it at two, two and a half percent, but then we know that unemployment is going to rise. So it really becomes, Roy, a trade-off and in a sense, a preference on behalf of the government. What do you want right now? What is the lesser of two evils? Do you want higher prices or higher unemployment, knowing that you can't cure both together? 
You know, we, uh, when you and I speak on the air, we normally have one or two issues that we uh, cover. I just feel like right now I'm taking uh, decorations off a Christmas tree. We'll take one over here, take one over there, take one over there, because there's so much going on. And they're not, well, they are related, but they're you know, not, not totally, completely uh, straight line related. Or maybe they are. I have, to, I have to think about what I just said. While I'm thinking about what I just said, why don't you talk to us about inflation um, about about it, I'm sorry, rising interest rates because the Fed in the U.S. is saying by 2023 you'll see a rise in interest rates, and that's already affected the futures market. Well, that's right. And for the listeners that have heard me before, they know that I think that the interest rate is the most important price in the economy because what it really does is it says how much money will is it going to cost me? What's going to be my premium? on borrowing. So if I'm a if if I'm a consumer that's called consumption and if I'm a firm it's called investment. And so it really is the lever that economists can push and pull when they want to control spending because we consider money to be an asset like a lot of other assets. So if you want people to demand more of it, you have to make it cheaper and vice versa. And so right now like I say we've been living in in a 30-year world of super low interest rates. And in fact, I saw this week, one of the mortgage companies uh, offered a a one-year fixed at 1.19%. That is effectively free money. So the answer to your question, as long-winded as I always am, is that the government's going to have to decide what does it want to do with interest rates? Because as we get back to this stagflation target, and yes, I'm kind of fixated on it because I don't hear enough people talking about it. What do you want to do, Roy? Do you want to fix the interest rate and keep it nice and low? Well, I do in terms of spending because spending is the number one growth motor in the economy, but it's going to hurt the the unemployment rate and we know that. So then you say, okay, let's let's be careful with the uh, with the unemployment rate because we don't want EI benefits to go through the roof. Let's let interest rates go up. Well, okay, no problem, except you know that consumption and investment spending across the economy is going to fall. So in a lot of ways, I like what you're saying, because we are coming out of a pandemic, but we're heading into a potential pick your poison environment. And as an economist, that makes me nervous. Yeah, makes me nervous. I mean, I choose whatever you choose, because you're the one with the PhD in this stuff. Me, I just meander around hoping for the best, hoping the grass is going to be green eventually. But it, it is it is very, con- I'm, I'm not trying to be funny here. This is just my crazy metaphors. Um, but Look, here's something else I want to talk to you about, and then we'll take some calls from our, our listeners. Where does this factor in? I was reading just the other day that the supply chain is strained, and prices of goods that are going to the wholesaler before they go to the retailer, prices of goods are more expensive, and so that makes goods more expensive. Where does that factor in, or is it already in that 3.6% consumer price index? You know, Roy, you should have been an economist because what you've done is you've just explained half of my stagflation argument, which is that you can have demand shocks um, to things like printing money too quickly. And we both know that that's been happening. Or you can have a supply shock when the supply chain slows down. And when you have less supply, that just naturally drives up the price because it increases scarcity. So you, again, you are like Kreskin. You've seen half of the problem now. And we are heading into an environment where supply shocks are going to marry demand shocks. And I'm I'm very concerned. And I'm glad that you and the listeners are as well, because it keeps me employed. 
Well, it, it keeps you employed and it keeps us informed because you provide us with this information. Now, you're very, very popular with our listeners. You've been on this program now, I would imagine, what, about four or five months we've had you on quite regularly. And each it's one has been just, yeah, it's been a great, it's been great. Um, what I hear from listeners is how much they appreciate the fact that you just call it the way you see it. You tell it like it is. You don't get caught up in politically correct uh, verbiage. You just tell it like it is. So I've received numerous emails from listeners saying, could we ask Professor Cam a question? So yes. Ian is in Vancouver. Thanks for the call, Ian. Go ahead, please. Uh, Professor, I'm just curious as to uh, what letter grade you would give the Liberals' economic policies during COVID. And in layman's terms, what are the practical or, or what, are, what, are the, uh, what are the results of that for the average Canadian? What is that going to look like? Um, so so a, a, your average Canadian would understand. Well, thanks. Um, I guess I would have to give them about a, maybe a D plus meaning that I wouldn't say that it's been complete failure in that they did what they had to do in the first round to keep the economy in liquidity and um, to stop from seizing up. Uh, but that's about, in my opinion, all that they did right. Um, they have not opened fast enough. They haven't dealt with the border fast enough. They haven't dealt with small business fast enough. And so I think they had, they did a wonderful job at doing the bare minimum. And when my students do the bare minimum, they tend to pull in a C plus, a C minus, a D plus grade like that. All right, Ian, I appreciate the call in Vancouver. Alan is in Toronto for Professor Cam. Hi, Alan. Hi, Roy. Thanks for taking my call. Great program, as always. Thank you. Um, my, my question is this, and I apologize. I came halfway through the interview, so I apologize if you already covered it. But my concern is with the government shelling out so much money over the last year and a half with COVID relief and, and benefits to individuals, are we not increasing our um, concerns over inflation or stagflation by two because in essence they've printed so much money that they've devalued our dollar so when you add that to the other impacts on the economy have we not in essence created a, a situation where we are negatively impacting our our hopes for recovery by by two well you had me and then you lost me um you're right they have printed an enormous amount of money which is going to inevitably cause some level of inflation or God forbid it causes no inflation and you're gonna see unemployment like we haven't seen in a very long time. Um, but to your point, uh, times two, times three, I have no idea. And this idea of printing more money devalues our currency. It doesn't really work like that. That's a bit of an urban legend. Brent is in Langley, British Columbia for Professor Cam. Brent, go ahead, please. Hey, so I've seen uh, six increases in the last year between uh, 10 to 30% at the plumbing wholesaler uh, for my buying, which is increasing the cost of the customers. Uh, do you think that uh, with the housing crisis as it is, people will be able to afford it and the government will artificially decrease the uh, interest rate to match to help people? I don't think the government's going to artificially do anything. Uh, I think the economy has an amazing way of writing itself. Uh, to your point, you're talking about what Roy was talking about, which is choking off the supply chain and increasing um, the supply side of the price level. And I think that is destined to continue. All right, Brent, appreciate the call. Back to Toronto and Bill on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, I've got a couple of pieces of property and I've got money invested in the stock market, primarily blue chip. 
What should I do to protect my assets? The easy answer, and I'm not a big stock market guy, corporate finance is not my area, is to diversify, diversify, diversify. You know that interest rates are going to go up. So, you know, that always helps savers. Um, but if any economist ever looks at you and tells you what's going to happen with the stock market, run like hell. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate the call. Many people, millions of people, uh, Dr. Cam, who, who live in this country, still, still breathing, remember the days when interest rates were at 18 percent i remember when they were 18 percent because i was young but i remember my mother and father terrified about their mortgage they signed a one-year mortgage at 18 percent and at the same time i watched my across the street neighbors put their keys under the door and walk away it is a terrible terrible situation yeah 30 seconds left lynn sends an email to roy at roygreenshow.com government debt can't survive a rate raise so what happens Government debt can survive a rate raise. Government debt can survive anything because they're the government and they tend to print the money and they tend to just owe themselves. So the question is whether the not whether the government can survive the debt payment. The question is if the government's making payments on the debt, what are they not doing? What is the sacrifice to maintain that debt? And we have lots of it. Lots and lots. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.